This episode of The Tome Show is brought to you by Galder's Gazetteer, a collection of advanced rules that raises money for cancer research. Find links in the show notes. And listeners like you, thanks you for being patrons at patreon.com slash thetomeshow. Welcome to The Tome, a D&D news, reviews, and interviews show, and I'm your Tome host, Jeff Greiner. And I'm Tracy Hurley, and in this episode, number 351... We're going to go out into the blasted wastes and scavenge for supplies and try to survive as we look at playing D&D in post-apocalyptic settings. And joining us in this episode is the Tome Show historian, writer for Tribality, Harbinger of Doom, and uh, I now have to say also Wizards of the Coast. Welcome back, Brandis Stoddard. Hi, thanks. I'm happy to be here tonight. Uh, also doing some podcasting over at Misdirected Mark, including a, a Dark Sun show. And the community man- manager for Ulysses Spiel, who makes one of my favorite games, Torg Eternity, our returning champion, Robert Aducci. Welcome back, sir. Hey, thanks for having me. And lastly, but not leastly, from the ever-popular Web DM show, a man who uh, is much better known in the gaming community than me, despite having been doing this for less than half the time I have. Uh, it's our new challenger, <laughs> the unimitatable uh, Jim Davis. Welcome, sir. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. <laughs> and in this episode, we're going to be digging into the idea of playing D&D in a post-apocalyptic setting. It's not a new idea by any stretch of the imagination. One could argue if Gamma World counts as D&D or if we have to go back to Dark Sun to find the earliest post-apocalyptic D&D. But the point being, it's been around for a long time and it's a style of setting and playing that is still going strong. Uh, before we really dig into it, I want to let people know about Galder's Gazetteer, our sponsor for this episode. This is an almost 200-page book for 5th edition D&D that is all about bringing new advanced rules like uh, new things to do with your actions or new martial abilities. Uh, it also has all sorts of classes and spells and, and a few adventures all to sort of help support adding these advanced features into your game. So if you're ready to, to move your game up to the next level and send some money to cancer research because all of the proceeds from the book go to cancer research. Please check it out. There are links in the show notes at thetomeshow.com that you can use to find exactly where it is. The wizard Galder has traveled to many, many worlds. Along his journey, he took notes on the mysterious and fantastic things he encountered. Many of the secrets he learned are chronicled now in Galder's Gazetteer, published by Zipperon Games. Galder's Gazetteer is a 5th edition D&D supplement that is an advanced expansion of the game rules, including new actions, conditions, and martial options that are all fully integrated into new classes, archetypes, ancestries, feats, spells, and DM tools, plus adventures for both 5th and 15th level to highlight these advanced rules options. Galder's Gazetteer was inspired by a gamer named Lawrence, who is dying of a rare form of cancer and wanted his character to be remembered in the annals of D&D lore. 100% of the proceeds for this book are donated to the Cancer Research Institute. You can find Galder's Gazetteer at drivethroughrpg.com at the regular price of $35 for a PDF or $47 for a print-on-demand physical copy. You can find more about Lawrence's story at lawrencescampaign.blog. Check out the show notes for links. All right. So, uh, first off, we're talking post-apocalyptic D&D, and I thought it might be useful as an opening question to ask everybody sort of what is everybody's 
experiences, personal experiences with post-apocalyptic D&D. What have we played? What have we run? What have we worked on? It's all sort of in that vein. Is there somebody who's really eager to go first? Uh, I'll take this one, I guess, uh, which is awfully presumptuous since there's someone running a Dark Sun game in the list, but sorry. <laughs> um, so um, I haven't played a lot of post-apocalyptic D&D. What I've done is written a post-apocalyptic MMO. Um, I worked on um, a game called Fallen Earth uh, from 2006 to 2010 with um, uh, you know, Tome Show regular Jeremiah McCoy along with a bunch of other folks. Uh, it was while working at Icarus Studios for Fallen Earth that I met my wife, Rabbit Stoddard, and so on. Um, it, was a, it was a big part of my life. Um, I was the... the sort of point man on uh, designing the crafting system along with some other systems design. I also wrote uh, quests and dialogue and edited and a bunch of other stuff. So that is the core of my experience with post Um Yeah, so I yeah, run tons of Dark Sun. I've run Dark Sun since like 1981 pretty much. Um, and it's funny because like while Dark Sun is, you know, definitely a lot of things are in the vein of post-apocalyptic, it's also sort of like, way, way, way past the post-apocalypse. Like, we're way post, but it still has a, a lot of that same feeling. Um, so uh, I've, I've run tons of that. Um, Scavenger is a game that is uh, not an official setting, but it's one that I helped uh, write a little bit of. Um, and that's sort of like mid-apocalypse, like the apocalypse is happening and all this weird stuff is going on with it. And so that is uh, definitely in the vein because there's, you know, it's got a lot of the same features, uh, same uh, same stuff. And then um, I guess some I've played some Gamma World which in fourth edition was, you know, kind of D and D ish. So, um, so that I think it's in the vein there. Yeah. But I just love the, I love post apocalypse in general. So not just D and D, but it kind of tons of settings or, or tons of uh, systems that have post apocalypse. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've just been a fan of, I've just been a fan of the genre since like, you know, almost before I was really into role playing games, just something about the, the duality of like this is a place where something's familiar it's 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 filled with like familiar artifacts and Mm -hmm. and and there's like a a i don't know almost a comfort to some of the the materiality of a post-apocalyptic story it's like this is the ruins of another civilization maybe your own but it's like also in such a very different context where it's like the everyday places that you might recognize become dangerous the like and like when i was translating that to fantasy it's like all right well there's all these tropes and you know, things that I like about fantasy that if I throw it in a post-apocalypse, <laughs> then, uh, you know, it, it, it hits that same button for me. Mm-hmm. So like mm-hmm. apocalypses have always been a part of my, uh, D and D experience because of that, just cause it's been, I find it fertile ground for, for, uh, adventure. I did a little of the gamma world and dark sun with fourth edition and then playing some apocalypse world in similar games outside of the D and D genre as well but that's about it so yeah so i've um i've run a very little bit of dark sun um i've played in a a short dark sun campaign as well i'm running gamma world actually right now for my kids the the i think it's seventh edition gamma world i always like to call it fourth edition because it's so tied to the fourth edition rules of DD. but it's seventh Mm -hmm. edition of gamma world right now and so that's very much post-apocalyptic D&D. My, I also ran a full 1 to 20 D&D, 5th edition D&D campaign before I had moved away from North Carolina. 
um, that was, uh, I always described it as post-apocalyptic fantasy earth. And I think that is, is going to be a good way to, to bring us into my next question, which is, which is what, what do we consider post-apocalyptic? What, what is this genre that we're talking about? Right. And what are the features that, that, um, you know, what are the essential key things there? Because like, I was thinking about it myself and I'm like, well, one of the things I think that sort of defines a lot of post-apocalyptic story is the scarcity of resources. Like it's a scramble to survive, Mm -hmm. to get the resources you need and what have you. And then I think back to my, what I always called my post-apocalyptic fantasy. It was post-apocalyptic fantasy earth D&D campaign. And there wasn't a scarcity of resources. Uh, So do you have to have a scarcity of resources to be post-apocalyptic? What do you think? I'll take this one. I don't I don't think that you necessarily need that, but it is a big point and it is something that I really like. But I mean, in the most literal sense, you know, you need an apocalypse to be post. <laughs> so you need to be after the apocalypse. And so I think even even a lot of regular D&D is like that, or at least it can have it in there. You know, you you find ruins. Ruins are a very mm-hmm. common thing. And it could just be that, you know, people decided to leave or it could be that uh, the wizards messed up magic. And so now, you know, destroyed the the. The kingdom, or it could be, you know, any number of apocalypses that happen in D and D. Pretty much all of the, all of the D and D kind of major adventures that they put out, especially for fifth edition, um, have that feeling where, like, if you don't do something, the world might end up being an, an apocalypse, right? So, yeah. it could be the giants coming in, it could be the demons, it could be whatever. So, you're, a lot of times you're staving off the apocalypse as well. And there is stuff like the descent the, the of Avernus, right? Too, where it's probably a little more already there. At least the Mad Max setting with the vehicles. Yeah. Well, and that's interesting because Descent into Avernus is a post-apocalyptic – it's very much – it hits the tropes of a post-apocalyptic setting. But it's not really post-apocalyptic. That's just hell, right? That's just the way yeah. it is, yeah. right? So so it's interesting because like post-apocalyptic I think is it can be defined with very specific key features. And yet, it, that, that doesn't necessarily mean it has to, one of those key features has to be it's after an apocalypse. I mean, but based on your description, Robert, like the Forgotten Realms is a post-apocalyptic setting, right? The, the Netherese had mm-hmm. flying cities. They messed with magic too much. They fell to the ground. Apocalypse, right? The world as we knew it is, as we know it has changed. Um, but I don't know that people would identify the Forgotten Realms as a post-apocalyptic setting. Um, that doesn't well, fit really you, the genre. If you ran it in the 200-somethings DR – then sure, absolutely, it's post-apoc. Right, right. In, in those years immediately after. Right. Yeah, yeah, I think it's, it's just, I think you know, time is a big factor there, yeah. Uh, and uh, Dragonlance is really noted for its cataclysm. That's mm-hmm. a major thing. It, mm-hmm. The cataclysm is even a, a central part of the novels once you get into the, the um, Legends series, I think it is. Um, so most settings have some kind of major catastrophic event in the past, I suggest that it's probably built on like fantasy and um, medieval fiction, thinking back to the fall of Rome. Mm. Yeah, I think that's a big influence too. Like, like it's it's post-apocalypse in that, like, like I don't see Forgotten Realms as post-apocalyptic, despite the fact that there are multiple civilizational collapses, right? Mm-hmm. But if I was running a game in during one of those, like during the fall of the Netherese Empire or like the century afterwards, I would certainly call that post-apocalyptic. But like after the world and the setting of time to move on and other civilizations have arrived, like then you're just dealing with the world that has a history and a and you know, you know, the like. But 
to me, like the features of post-apocalyptic genre are, are not just scarcity of resources, but like the ever present, just presence of the ruins of the prior civilization. Like you can't mm. get away from them. A, a sense that like we had something before either we were a part of that civilization or like our immediate ancestors were mm -hmm. and, and we've lost something. And, and to me, there's like kind of a, a sorrow and a sadness in a lot of post-apocalypse that I really enjoy. Um, right. And so like, like that's really kind of the, the sweet spot for me. Well, what's funny is that like within its stated, like, uh, concept Forgotten Realms is supposed to be that the realms that are forgotten aren't really forgotten the ruins are supposed to be everywhere it's just that actually delivering on its its core concept like falls by the wayside a lot right like it, they have th this idea of realm shaking events that don't really shake anything over <laughs> things are mostly the same afterward sure right it, it's it's post apoc that doesn't quite gotten how big you have to go for something to be an apocalypse they mostly just transition us to new additions which you know means every time there's a new edition of D, &D then, then an apocalypse happens right yeah <laughs> yeah 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 i think it's the difference between like a published setting and your home campaign because i i fell into post-apocalyptic D, D when i had a campaign that ended in a tpk right when the heroes were about to defeat the big bad and is just one of those the dice went against them we all end up, we look around and go like, wow, that's two thirds of the party gone. The other ran away or surrendered. Like, I guess the bad guys win. And then the next campaign was like a hundred years later dealing with the events of that. And like the sun's been plotted out and, you know, the, the plants of icy, you know, hellscape kind of thing. And like, you know, home game, you can utterly wreck your setting. <laughs> like you can call down all manner of apocalypses on it. And I, you know, I, I find that fun to build up something and then just, completely tear it down so I, I run the forgotten realms the same way every time i do there's we take those realm shattering events seriously right <laughs> don't nice. let anyone tell you you can't destroy the realms absolutely not we put elminster's ashes in a bag <laughs> isn't there a, a bag it, it, he's lucky a potentially interesting concept there in terms of like somebody else's post-apocalypse will eventually just be life for that and i think one of the problems is that so many times we're involved the events have been far enough in the background that unless you're like an elf or someone else you won't yeah. remember what mm -hmm. the before times were like these are just the times mm -hmm. yeah well i like and that i think that's that, that, that yeah an so elf that's a big part post-apocalypse everybody else has moved on <laughs> <laughs> nice that's a big part also of post-apocalypse of, of people not knowing the history, like not knowing what came before mm -hmm. uh, because of the apocalypse, because so much information was lost. Um, that kind of goes back to what Jim was saying about, you know, having loss. And I think um, what one of the again, one of the funny things about Dark Sun is that the apocalypse was so long ago, but there's still horrible magic kind of destroying things on a regular basis. So you even though it was however long ago, which, you know, kind of varies depending on which canon you like to go with, but um, it's still happening now. Like all of those same effects are still around. And so you still have that ever present, A, not knowing what the history is, B, uh, having the current, uh, you know, magic kind of destroying things and having tyranny. Like you've always got those strong men, uh, you know, strong leaders that come and kind of want to control people. Um, after the apocalypse to control those resources that are rare. Um, and in Dark Sun, you know, it's water and it's metal and things like that. But, you know, it could be, you know, food and whatever else is, is pretty common. 
Yeah, I'm sort of like, as we've talked about it, we've kind of talked around the idea of defining what makes a post-apocalyptic game post-apocalyptic. Um, and, and as I think about it, like, I'm not sure that we've, uh, until Robert just said what you said, right? I'm not sure that we've really hit the thing that we define, that, that, that the community generally defines as what post, like Dark Sun is definitely a post-apocalyptic setting, uh, in, in the same way that like, Mad Max is a post-apocalyptic movie, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Like we know it, we know that's the genre, right? There, there, uh, and yet, if we're set, you know, I think it does maybe need to at least in a, as a genre. I think it needs to have things like the tyrannical rulers that that rule by might, you know, the 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 scarcity of resources that they're controlling that allows them to sort of have that kind of power over people, uh, as well as the sort of forgotten past and the artifacts of the time and all that kind of stuff, right? Because you could argue the people of Dark Sun, the people uh, in Thunderdome, right? That they they don't think of necessarily their world as being post-apocalyptic, right? That's just how life is, right? They've also moved on. And yet it's not it's clearly and distinctly different than the realms where people have also moved on and there are still artifacts of the past around. Um, but it's, I think it's that scarcity of resources and the, the tyranny of, of its rulers that sort of rule by might in my mind as we come to it that, are, that really defines post-apocalyptic. Is that fair? I find it fair and, and not just fair, but I find it like really fertile ground for D&D. Mm-hmm. And like mm-hmm. when I think of an adventurous environment that – maximizes player agency and and puts players in the seat of like your characters have the the ability to make like a real impact here there's no legitimate authority Mm -hmm. there's no no one they can appeal to no higher power like if they want things to improve then they're gonna have to do that and and take on the burden of that and i find it like it it has such potential for for like heroism that can come at a cost and like they that it that you know you're not guaranteed that this is going to succeed because of the scarcity of resources, because there's no like legitimate authority. It's just, you know, the PCs and whoever they can, you know, ally with and what they can do that. Like for me personally, as both a player and a DM, like those stories that come out of that gameplay are powerful to me. And like some of my most emotionally satisfying D and D has come from post-apocalyptic gaming. Oh, I was thinking about uh, how like you were talking about what memory of the past means. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, Mad Max, um, the the characters are actually very focused on passing down stories from the before time. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And and like in Fury Road, even passing down the ideas of geography is a really important part of their connection mm-hmm. to the past. They're wrong. It's <laughs> sure. important to the story that they're wrong, but. It's it's a huge part of that setting to remember the past and to tell those stories, um, and it also is very much the case in um, Beyond Thunderdome that they run into the kids, right, mm-hmm. who, who are passing down these stories. And um, I, I'm not I, I don't know Dark Sun well enough to know how much the the characters of that world focus on passing down stories of you know, the before time or, or how much the, the um, dragon Kings have stamped that crap out. Well, yeah, I mean, that's definitely part of it. And that's part of the struggle because the uh, Sorcerer Kings have 
you know, they've outlawed reading. And so they've prevented history from moving forward. Um, and then you have the the Veil Alliance, which are generally like, you know, the quote unquote good wizards who, you know, A, have to know how to read, but also are casting magic. And that's also illegal. And so the Veil Alliance are the ones that are very commonly um, kind of bringing history forward. Um, and then you also have the elves who uh, are not as long lived as they are in regular D&D, but they are also sort of against the, the Sorcerer Kings in a lot of ways, uh, just because of their free free lifestyle. But um, but they're also going to have their own their own stories and history and things like that, too. One of the things I'd like to throw out there, though, is that I know like there is definitely a type of post-apocalyptic that focuses on like tyranny and stuff like that that can happen in, in a situation where there isn't clear power. But there also are a lot of folks that talk about a post-apocalyptic world that's more like uh, skills and stuff that maybe today aren't as useful because we've gotten into a society where maybe it's a high magic society. All of this stuff is taken care of for us. And then if, for instance, magic suddenly stops working, what do you do cooperatively going forward is another way to also do a post-apocalyptic setting. It's kind of it's kind of the the zombie apocalypse hits and now all of your, your coding skills don't matter. <laughs> right. right. You, you run into prepper fantasy there. <laughs> yeah. And that's that's what a lot of modern post-apocalypse is, I feel like. Uh, uh, I don't know, Dies of the Fire. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that. Uh, I think it's S.M. Sterling. Uh, it's a great book, but it's just like, uh, for some reason, combustion stops. So you can't shoot guns, you can't have cars, um, but most everything else works. And so, um, you know, it's basically like, how do you how do you live in that sort of society? And it turns into more magical stuff later, but the first few books are just like rebuilding society, which is what I love. Like, that's what I love about zombie apocalypses. I love, you know, the zombie stuff is cool, but I really love the community building afterwards. Mm. So I love like, not just right after the apocalypse, but several years after where you're seeing communities built and how people change them and how they survive. You know, they're small communities and so they have to, you know, fight against other ones. I love that aspect too. Yeah. So it's interesting because I think there's there's two different things going on. Like, I think post-apocalyptic as a genre is one thing. Right. Um, and then post-apocalyptic as a descriptor of a type of story, like the setting that I played my my post-apocalyptic fantasy earth game was in a setting that happened after an apocalypse. But it doesn't hit any of the real sort of tropes and themes that, that we're discussing. Uh, and so it is I can describe it as being post-apocalyptic, but its genre was not post-apocalyptic. Right. The, you know, they were building cities yeah. inside of the, the former shells of battleships that had run aground. You know that, you know, there were all the clues were there, but it was really more uh, more like Shannara, which is still high fantasy, even if it's on mm-hmm. sort of uh, Earth after an apocalypse. Right. Uh, but then I would say that you could also have an Avernus, which hits all of our, our touchstones for post-apocalyptic without actually being after an apocalypse. And I think that kind of <laughs> works, too. Yeah, yeah, and it's kind of funny talking about it because you had mentioned earlier how it's like hell, literally supposed to be hell. Right. And if you took it the Christian tradition, right, after <laughs> after the four horsemen come and stuff like that, it basically will be hell on Earth. So, <laughs> Right. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah, it certainly fits there. Yeah, I, I think we're like hitting on a what that there's like a, an aesthetic of the post-apocalypse, like a wasteland aesthetic, a, a, a you know, like a cobbled together sort of aesthetic that I think that Avernus uh, was was looking to capture there. And then there's like the substance of post-apocalypse, which is like grappling with the loss of the past and rebuilding in the wake of collapse and like 
the, I, the fact that we can separate those two out and you can have a game that has the trappings of post-apocalypse, but you're like, I just don't want to have to worry about rations. You know, like I just, that's not the kind of game I'm in for right now. And you can, and you can still get that. And then you can go over here and go like, well, I'm, I'm into like resource scarcity and rebuilding, but I maybe not so much the Mad Max aesthetic and I'd like something different. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I really, really like that about the two, uh, two elements. So I think that that pretty much I think we've basically also covered a little bit of my next question, which was about the variety that you can get to within a post-apocalyptic setting. And I think we've we've discussed that pretty well at this point. So I'd kind of like to move into D&D as a post-apocalyptic game. As has been brought up, like there are there are games built around the idea of telling stories in post-apocalyptic settings. D&D is not one of those. So how well does D&D do post-apocalyptic? Um, and sort of in what ways does it does it do post-apocalyptic well, do we think? So talking about Dark Sun, um, I don't, you know, I've never felt that it does like the, the scarcity very well. Um, and fifth edition specifically, like you have to make, you have to make it work to make it work well. Um, one of the things that I love about post-apocalyptic stories uh, and going into the scarcity is there, you know, you're in a fight and all of a sudden, you know, whether it's the movie Mad Max or whatever, but you know, you get your, you know, during the fight, you get your water broken and all of a sudden you don't have water. Like there's no, there's no mechanics in D and D to do that. And so, you know, a lot of times I'll just say like, well, there's no, you know, somebody got a critical hit on you. They don't do any extra damage, but they damage your water or your food or whatever. And so like just making those sorts of things to, to, to kind of add those feelings um, are important because D and D doesn't do everything. And so, and, and it's made to add stuff on like people, a lot of times I feel like think that uh, if you just play D and D, it's supposed to be played straight, but it's like, I think it's made to add all these extra things to make it feel like the game that you want it to be. Amen. Yeah. Yeah. It's a toolkit to, to mm-hmm. kind of create your own games. And I, I agree. I, I think it can do post-apocalypse, but not like straight out of the box and right. resource um, scarcity is part of that. Like as, as what I especially like about the example you were giving Robert is like that, how that becomes emergent. Like, you know, we didn't know at the beginning of this fight that we were going to come out of this with the loss of water, you know, and mm-hmm. you know, we knew going in, we'd probably lose some hit points, but like we're now having to deal with something unexpected to me that that's a real driver of play. Um, but, uh, but I agree. I think D and D is robust enough that you can shape it into something that it doesn't like, you know, that's not factory standard and especially fifth edition can, it can take a lot of uh, twisting and changing and still uh, play just fine. I just really like the idea of uh, something other than additional hit point loss on a critical hit. Um, that, that very sort of GM takes a hard move from the mm-hmm. in, in the apocalypse world sense. I think that's that's a really strong choice. Mm-hmm. And I think if if you're running a post apocalyptic D and D game, I think you'd be you'd be smart to to make sure you've reviewed sort of the the environmental hazard section of the of the DMG, right? What is, what happens when you're in extreme heat or extreme cold or whatever? And also make sure you're very familiar with the exhaustion rules because I because you're going to end up leaning on that a lot in a way that's interesting because Descent into Avernus, I don't recall actually discussing that in the in the book, but they could have added a lot more of the 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 post apocalyptic feeling if they had. I think. Well, the, the, a lot of the resource management centers around soul coins, right? right. It, which is very much the guzzling of uh, Avernus. <laughs> right. 
Right. But mostly they wanted you to be able to run around on giant uh, war machines uh, with blades coming off of them and fighting other warlords. (laughs) And if the stories I hear are any measure feeling really bad about it because you're torturing someone's soul for it. Well, (laughs) I can talk about the changes I made in Descent into Avernus to address that, but that's not the point of this episode. (laughs) And then another part of the lack of resources and the lack of knowledge is also the idea that in a lot of, you can get huge battles and stuff in a lot of these uh, like movies like Mad Max and stuff. But a lot of times you want to try to avoid fights because you can't necessarily heal from them afterwards, which mm-hmm. is where it starts maybe sometimes stretching with D&D a little bit because the systems for bringing up those other parts into play aren't quite as robust. Like you can get into exhaustion and you, I guess you could say like, if you don't have a, a way to carrying water anymore, right. you have to figure out how much water you're carrying, which a lot of people don't want to do mm-hmm. necessarily. Even just the, the um, abundance of healing in D and D is an issue for right. a post-apocalyptic setting, which is, I think is why original second edition Dark Sun just said, well, that works out because there's no clerics. They just don't exist. So you can't heal. <laughs> right. And I know each party could always be, uh, you know, the one cleric in the entire world could be in that party because that's what parties are about. But that would mean that you couldn't find necessarily someone else to right. uh, do those types of spells if your cleric happens to either be too low a level or dead. Yeah, in in Dark Sun, you know, you have your elemental clerics, and so you know, in in the various groups and discords and things like that, you're there's always a question. Like someone, you know, who's relatively new to Dark Sun will say, like, my player is a water cleric, and so therefore they can create water, and they pretty much neuter the whole idea of uh, having a lack of water because they can create water every day. And it's like, okay, well, they're specifically making that choice to be that character, like you were just saying, Tracy. Like you might have the one you know, the one water cleric that's adventuring. And so, and so, yes, it does sort of minimize that, but they're choosing that that's what they want that story to be. So Mm -hmm. instead of, instead of trying to punish them or trying to make them lose water, really lean into it. uh, Is that what I would say? And like, oh, you're the only water cleric around. Well, guess what? These warlords, they want you working for them, whether you want, whether you want to or not. So all of a sudden there's, there's a conflict on, you know, in that. And it's also a a signal from the players that like, you know, the the scarcity of resources like water is not the kind of game I'm interested in playing because I specifically built a character to work around that. Mm-hmm. You know? Exactly. Yep. Yeah. And you might want to ask the players too, like what type of game they want, because maybe mm-hmm. they do want the game where they fight against the warlord being like lording over them and, and stuff like that. Or maybe they really want to be able to help rebuild a uh, civilization back mm-hmm. up from the apocalypse and, and join together and be more of that cooperative. Definitely. As I as when I first asked this question about how well D and D does post apocalypse, um, one of the first thoughts I had was that you know fifth edition arguably does it pretty well because characters aren't as built def- dependent on resources, you know, magic items or whatever to in in order to be uh, effective and what have you. Um, and then it occurred to me, but isn't that the point like isn't that why in arguably like a second edition or a third edition does dark sun better because the lack of resources matters and it hurts and you feel like you're in an apocalypse uh so um you know it, it's I'm not it, sure yeah go ahead I'm not sure third edition I'm not sure third edition has that much resource dependence that uh fifth edition like gets rid of 
uh, other than, well, I guess you don't have the magic items you need right. to do the thing because mm-hmm. our whole math is dependent on magic items. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, that was the resources I was thinking about for third, but well, and third your, would not be my go-to. And using your uh, skill point trait because you'd have a lot, much longer <laughs> skill list, so you might not have certain skills in your party. Uh, you can still definitely lack skills in in fifth. I, I'm pretty sure, just probably not perception. <laughs> and you know, with resources, one of the things I do um, to make it feel a little bit more resource intensive is I use the kind of alternate rules for uh, long rest or short rest. So like if you take a short rest, you, you know, you, you get your, you know, your class resources back and stuff, but you don't, uh, you don't heal unless you spend your hit dice, of course. And if you take a long rest also, I do the same thing. Like you don't heal automatically. You still have to still have to spend your hit dice. So your people, they're, they're almost never full on hit dice, you know, because they're using them all the time. Mm Mm-hmm. This is where, I mean, as much as they they had support and it was popular and whatever uh, for Dark Sun as a post-apocalyptic setting in 4th edition, 4th edition as a setting, I felt like, or I feel now, thinking back on it, doesn't really support the post-apocalyptic genre very well with, with the hit dice and um, playing Gamer World again recently and re- being reminded of rules like regaining hit points up with short rests and, and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and then the healing surges and all that kind of stuff. Like um, there's not like the scarcity of resources, the, the lack of healing, the grittiness and the deadliness of the setting just doesn't hit as home as, as hard uh, in that system. Um, but maybe you could do it better in, in fifth edition. Um, although, Again, you're not super resource dependent, and there's some healing at least available to you, even if you don't have the cleric in the party. Um, mm-hmm. Shifting over to the uh, the uh, extended long rest rules, the, the the like longer, short, and long rest rules in the DMG could cover a mighty lot of that, because making it so that the players can't sit still for a whole week, that is not that hard. Are you saying that there are useful ideas and useful rules in the DMG that nobody's ever read? <laughs> I, I, I nearly insist upon it. <laughs> yes, absolutely. You know, you should do an Edition Wars series, chapter by chapter, going through the DMG. Uh-huh. Should I? <laughs> How many episodes of that have you recorded now? I'm, I'm, uh, I'm taking notes here. Don't worry. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, He'll yeah. double your pay, Brandis. Yeah. Oh, good, good. Yeah, uh-huh. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, so you, you, I know you carry the nothing. Uh. Yeah. <laughs> so there's more DM, deep dive DMG goodness coming. Uh, so, and then, oh, yeah. Sure is, yeah. I, and, and absolutely, there is... It's amazing that you, you think about, okay, I want to do this genre or that genre of D&D or whatever. Like, there's a lot of support that already exists. If we yep. bother to look in the DMG, there's a lot of stuff there. It describes a lot of the dials you can turn to make mm-hmm. a game feel more post-apocalyptic and get that that feeling. Um, but it's it's hard to remember to go to that book when, when it's time to do it, right? <laughs> One, yeah. one thing that I, I really like is like the healer's kit dependency mm-hmm. because we're talking about resources tying like the renewal of like class ability type resources or, or things that you get with like an object or a tool or something that has, a, you know, expiration date on it. Like to me reinforces that like, oh, we can't spend hit die without using charges from our healer's kit. Well, how are we going to get that heat 
charged back up. We're going to have to go back out there and find some more bandages and some more creams. Or something. I, mean, I don't know what else in the healer's kit, depending on what genre you're in. But, you know, like they've got to use a, a, a finite physical resource uh, as opposed to just relying on sleeping and then getting their like metagame resources back, you know, their per rest abilities, things like that. Mm-hmm. So like I, I could take that a step further and say like, well, maybe you need food and adequate water in order to be able to spin hit dice or to even like gain the benefit of a rest. Like, did you not get enough to eat and drink in this well, hot wasteland? Like, right. And, and that's you know. not even a, that's not even a, a dial. That's yeah. literally how the exhaustion and resting rules work. <laughs> sure. Right. If when you're we remember to actually uh, put them into place and use right. them. <laughs> as, as not even I do. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but if you're running a, a, that kind of a setting, right. If you're running this post-apocalypse setting, that's it's going to be, you know, it's just the same way that um, I normally don't pay too much attention to the exhaustion rules. But recently, my characters were trudging through a desert and I needed to do something to encapsulate that. And hey, guess what? There's rules for that, you know, and and it deals with the exhaustion rules. I, and I think like for me, as, as I, you know, run more post-apocalyptic games in D&D and, and especially fifth edition, what I found is like there's so many ways in which there are options in the game that let you skip past the most interesting parts of play and like rewinding things and going like, well, I, I kind of that moment where we run out of something in the middle of nowhere and we need, we now have to, a choice to make of, do we divert course to go re- you know, renew this resource or do we continue on our way? Like that's a meaningful decision. That's going to determine what happens next in the campaign and sort of challenges that are present. But if you're not tracking how much your characters are consuming that you're missing that opportunity for a different kind of emergent story to come out of the uh, the game and so i i usually look at rules that are going to skip past that and and see how we can make them like interesting or interactive instead of like eh, we don't need to worry about this i don't tell fighters they're never going to get the fight because they made a fighter you want to zoom in on those moments <laughs> uh, i was thinking about this this actual topic uh, recently as well, that that in many ways, the post-apocalyptic genre requires you to sort of lean into the parts of D&D that we oftentimes don't find to be fun and to hand wave. Like how much water do you have? How much food do you have? Should we, should we track our ammunition? I'm running out of arrows. Is that a big deal? Yeah, probably. Cause there's no, there's no wood, you know, how do you get more arrows? Uh, you know, mm-hmm. all of those things that normally like, that is not the fun part of a game for me, uh, keeping track of how many arrows you have. It just doesn't matter and it's not fun. It's for me. <laughs> but it kind of matters for the kind of story you're telling here, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I even I, – I was uh, I was recently watching the WebDM episode about your, your new Kickstarter, um, which is a post-apocalyptic sort of uh, book that you're producing. And you talked about how it's – it has – you know, it leans into this idea of – of the environment and the dangers of travel and all that kind of stuff. It's like, yeah, but like, I like to skip all of that stuff. Traveling from place to place isn't the fun part of D&D. But if you're running post-apocalyptic, I think you kind of have to lean into that, don't you? Yeah, yeah, I, I think so. I, I think you need to, like, number one, accept that there are parts of resource management that are tedious and boring and we can fix them. <laughs> like, we can embrace a higher degree of abstraction instead of like finding the weight and of every item you have and then tallying it up, right? Even if you're using a VTT or, or something that, that can help you out, but like if you had a resource die, if you abstracted it to sort of like 
the way that uh, UVG uh, ultraviolet grasslands does. Like you have supplies. This a, a supply is worth a week's is a week's worth of bandages, medicine, food, water, whatever you're going to consume in that week. You have one supply, and like that's time to the the scales that you're traveling across the great grasslands there. But like. I find that the abstraction is something that that I get pushback from players from because they want like, well, no, how many arrows do I have actually? <laughs> well, you, we have D six. You at the end of the fight, you're gonna roll that die. If it comes up a one or a two, you now have D four. Like getting nice. getting a player on board for this kind of a game, I think is a is a challenge. But once they're on board, it's like it's really satisfying. And I'm a player who tallies up all my. I'll tally up your gear too at the table. Like, <laughs> don't like doing encumbrance. I'll do it for you. <laughs> nice. I like that aspect. And I've always struggled also with that because I, I love the resource management, but also I know a lot of people don't. And so I've always kind of struggled with what that looks like. And I've been really thinking about creating a system that's similar um, to the hunger system in the new v, uh, V5 vampire. The cool thing about that is basically every day, you know, you wake up, Instead of just like the old vampire, like you would lose a blood point every day, that kind of thing. And that's sort of boring, right? But in the new system, you have to roll every day to see. And when you use certain powers, you roll to see if your hunger increases. And so you never really know how hunger you're getting. You could, be, you could get three hunger out of five, like your max is five. So you could get three within a few minutes, like waking, waking up. You know, obviously you already have one plus one. You wake up, plus you use a power. And all of a sudden you have three. And you're you not only does not only does that make it so that you, you know you know you're hungry, but also those those three dice have effects in the game in other places. And so I feel like you doing something that like that in D and D would help. So for example, you know after you have a fight, make some kind of check. If you fail, then you add to your hunger and your thirst because you just exerted a lot of energy doing that, you know. Um, so I think there's there there are some cool there there could be some cool mechanics to um, to make it broader. And in terms of having an impact mechanics, I think you can again lean into the exhaustion rules, right? You've you've gone through this incredibly uh, tiresome combat in the middle of the desert because you were attacked by a I don't know scorpion lion or whatever it is. Uh, uh, am I leaning on? Is that an avatar thing? I don't know. Maybe, um, <laughs> but but you know you've gone through this very this exertion. Now make a, a constitution check or a survival check and see if you if you've you know exhausted yourself that you need to use up a bunch of resources and 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 or you run out of resources and start gaining levels of exhaustion, which can eventually kill you. So mm-hmm. the exhaustion rules, while I like them, they feel like they they. I feel like they they go up too fast. Like mm. there's not enough variation there uh, because I think like by the third time you're pretty hosed by the third level of yeah. exhaustion. <laughs> yeah, half speed, disadvantage, and everything. I, at the very least, I switch the first two so that the first one you're just moving half and not like mm. disadvantage on all your checks. But mm-hmm. I would also like just completely change them for some things. Like use use the temp, use them as a template, but like maybe hungry or something has. Like eventually a rack of exhaustion levels, but it's something else first. Mm-hmm. It's you know, mm-hmm. know so, maybe an irritable so, flaw or something. <laughs> so Jim, what? Yeah. How are you doing that in uh, in your Kickstarter? So what we're doing is um, we're embracing that high degree of abstraction, so that um, you know we're not asking players to like count resources and sort of keep a tally on them and rather to uh, use a, a usage die, like say the Black Hack or uh, Aliens RPG does, where you 
you know, you have a die after you use a resource, you roll it. If it comes up a one or a two, it bumps down to a smaller size uh, to represent the diminishment of that resource. And then there's some things you could do to increase it. You know, you could go foraging for water and the like. Then we're also introducing like some new conditions and then, um, you know, things that like represent just sort of being miserable or deprived of the thing, the comforts of home that you might, uh, you know, prefer, even if that home is just a, a dry cave somewhere, or a, you know, burned out husk of something. Um, but a lot of the things that we're doing are like having the environment push back in ways that, that are trying to Trying to explain it, trying to get the idea from my my head, uh, it put it into words. But like, we don't want to invalidate player choices if they're taking spells or class features or or character options that like give them an edge in a wilderness survival situation. We don't want to tell them like, well, no, actually, you can't take that spell or this feature is unavailable because it negates this thing. Is to instead say the conditions of the environment have changed such that using that ability has changed or there's something different about using that ability like you can eat magic food you can drink conjured water but is that a good idea to do what a lot of like it's a magically irradiated wasteland you might be hurting yourself mm. by not drinking or eating something that's like grown from the ground and not conjured or you know you can conjure a, a you know a, a, a shelter for yourself out in the wasteland because that's cool that's like a great spell to take you might need a, a you know, an instant shelter but there could be weather effects that penetrate it or that dispel it or something about the environment that makes its use um you know different than what's written so using a combination of those things to just shake up the way that uh, players engage with the exploration pillar and hopefully they find it enjoyable yeah which actually you you brought up um while we've been ta talking i i i i i came upon that i think there's another definitional sort of part of the genre of post-apocalyptic that we hadn't mentioned before we talked about this sort of tyrannical might makes right rulers and we talked about the lack of resources but i think the environment is also an important part of what makes up makes post-apocalyptic post-apocalyptic and i think the environment does that in two ways one it, it's harsh which kind of ties to the the lack of resources but the other thing that i think is true is that the environment creates monsters right it makes it makes things dangerous. There's things out there, whether it's some sort of radiation or or magical effect or whatever, like something is out there that, that's turning things into horrible, deadly, savage monsters. Even if in the case of, of Mad Max, it's it's people, right? You're turning the people into the monsters uh, in very literal right. ways. You right? always need wasteland mutants. Yes. Right. Yeah. Yes. You have, have wasteland mutants. I mean, as Fallout taught us nothing. Yeah, I like the, I like that idea of, or I'm interested in that idea of the the resource die and the roll of one or two, meaning that you go to a die lower because mm. you start off feeling pretty good, but once you start losing that resource, like it's more likely that you'll lose it again the next time because with fewer with a smaller die, the one or two suddenly becomes a lot more common, and then when you get down to a d4, you get down to a d4, and it's fifty fifty, you know. Yeah, it it also opens up the door for like. 
uh, a variability that I found when, when I'm a player and I'm in a resource management game, there's a bit too much predictability. Like I can look at a hex map and go, okay, we can travel X number of hexes a day. I got food for myself, my, my mounts. I got, you know, I, you know, I plotted it all out. Everything's there. I got guards for them and everything. And like once that, once that work is done, you just sort of like multiply that by the number of days you think. And it's usually going to be safe. And, by using a resource die, that can simulate things like, well, our, some of our food went bad. Well, it's a good thing I have purified food and water. Maybe that bumps up a die, you know, or, um, you know, weevils got into them and ate them all. Or there was a hole in the bag and we've been trailing, you know, uh, water for the last whatever, you know, that kind of thing. That's much more narratively interesting to me than, well, now we have to do the math because we're doing this journey and I want to make sure we have enough of this and, and how are we going to carry all the water, you know, the, how are we going to fill a barrel full of water and carry it across the desert, you know, that becomes yeah. a, I don't know, at that point, I might as well be, be running a business because I'm just doing math and filling out ledgers, <laughs> right? That's the part of the resource right. management that's not fun to me. But doing the the variability and the randomness of the die, um feels like it yeah. has more potential for for interesting narrative things to happen. Yeah, in, in doing the research for for Weird Wastelands, one of the things, you know, went out there and asked, I want to talk to people who did not like wilderness exploration and survival, who were like, we want to skip the journey. We want, I wanted to know what it was about that play that, that they didn't enjoy. And the overwhelming answer that I got back was it's meaningless. It doesn't mean, it, it, it's, it lacks consequence. The things that happen on a journey are just, obstacles in the way to what really matters and like some of that's reframing on a player's part but i think like if you're if a dm is able to generate situations where context and meaning are embedded in it and it's like a narrative prompt as well then you can like bring out what makes all this so enjoyable in the first place and how does the resource management change over levels though because i think like if i started at level one and i'm at level eight i probably still don't want to care about carrying water over a long well, distance? I mean, sure. I think by level eight, like still D and D the nature of the game is going to have to change to adjust for character levels. So at a certain point, the fact that you either can conjure it at will or have access to it through magic items or, or connections, or you control an oasis and, and, and sort of have access to it like that, like is a marker of your progression. And one of the things I think is DMS is like, Sometimes we envision a campaign and we're really just looking at this narrow window of it of like, I really want this like five to six level range of campaign. And then once again, beyond that, we want to like pull it back. But to me, eighth level adventures in the in a post-apocalyptic wasteland are like they're rebuilding civilization. Like no, they're, exactly, they're engaging yeah. on something mm. grander than just day to day survival now. Right. Like right. past it. Well, at that point, the the resource die becomes less of a hindrance because, like you said, like I can I can cast a handful of spells and increase my die type several times a day, and that pretty much takes care of it, right? Yeah, but can you feed the twenty people who are now following you? Sure, who exactly. Might be looking to you for protection, like it's, it's kind of like that. Uh, you you up the stakes by like your personal needs are met, but like you might have other obligations that your resources are going to be stretched by. I just want to say. Uh, I do think there's real value in having some parts of a game that are actively a drag, right? I'm yeah. uh, like I'm playing a lot of video games that are in the Souls-like family. These are games with parts built in that are deliberately a drag. That they are they are brutal and unforgiving and unfun. That is a, a deliberate design choice that they made in making them, and all of that difficulty does make victory matter more 
that that is the the emotional promise. So I I, I guess I I don't want to see like too much abstraction make it like 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 I agree that the thing you're doing with the dice doesn't make it irrelevant. It just makes it less predictable, and that can be very good. Just um, I feel though, Brandis, that's a little bit of a selection bias issue. How do you mean? Because if uh, the people who don't like drag just drop out of the games, the, the, <laughs> it's not going to make the end mean more to them. Uh, I mean, um, just like Souls-likes aren't for everybody, post isn't either. No, no, I know, but just saying that there has to be a, has to be drag in order for, like, in getting, it depends on the players, that's all I'm trying to say. Right. Is, so, um, for, j- sure, I, I guess I'm also thinking about all of the like the important setbacks that show us the stakes in post-apocalyptic, post in Mad Max. I'm talking about Mad Max, guys. <laughs> I can't say post-apoc today any yeah. more than Jeff can. And, uh, and that's like, the hard part I'm having in this discussion is because, like, I think of post-apocalyptic, and I think it's awesome because we've done away with a lot of the structure. Potentially, could have done away with a lot of the structures in society that keep some people in certain positions and we can rebuild a whole new society and then suddenly skills that currently aren't as valued because they've been kind of moved to factories and other things could be a really interesting thing to explore and that doesn't mean that i'm trying to like yuck anyone else's yum but it's hard it's it's hard for me to in this discussion a little bit sometimes sure that's fair uh the other other thing i see there is like um man is the real monster is really, really central to a lot of post-apoc, right? Mad Max, most of all. Which kind of ties into, it ties into the might-makes-right tyrannical ruler sort of concept, right? Right. Mm-hmm. And, uh, like, I I have a lot of sympathy for the, like, uh, non-bleak post-apoc that Tracy's talking about. You don't see it a lot. Yeah. Right? And I think uh, like Dark Sun has has that right. It's got it's got the the strong rulers who are there to keep everybody down. But there's hope. Like the 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 initial Dark Sun box set starts off with that. Starts off with one of the seven Sorcerer Kings being killed, right? But then I I feel like personally like that's the best moment because there's hope. People know there's hope, and so that's where you can build from. When the revised box set came around after the Prison Pentad five of the other sorcerer kings are dead so now there's too much hope in my mind like right. <laughs> that changed things and 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 if you if you like the the world build or not the world building but the the change and you want things to be different like tracy's talking about i think that's probably a better place for you to play because like now all these other uh, cities are different and so yeah how do they how do they all work together so yeah there's definitely different flavors of post-apocalyptic in there yeah, yeah I, I think you really need that element of hope because otherwise it's just too bleak Mm-hmm. Right, like I love grim dark games. I absolutely love them, but like they need levity, the humor, uh, hope, something different. Otherwise, it just it, it wears you out. And I think like mm-hmm. the the possibility of rebuilding and of make of making something like even in a pretend elf game world, whatever, like just <laughs> the possibility of getting to do that with your friends is so powerful that like I I want my post apocalyptic gaming to always have that door open, like even if it's really bleak, <laughs> like. That's why I play in D. Other than a, an occasional one shot, I don't want. I don't ever want to play in a game that doesn't. When there's not an element of hope, whether it's in post-apoc or if it's in horror or whatever, right? If there's not an element of hope, then then what are you playing for, right? I again, I could I could play a one shot where there's no hope and it's call of the sure. and eventually things are going to fall apart and you're all going to die or go insane, right? Um, you know, but but most of the time, 
I, I, I want to tell a long form story. I want to tell a story where there's hope and we're building on that hope. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think like I you guys remember the midnight setting oh, yeah. uh, third edition. Like mm-hmm. I, I ran a couple of games in that one, and I I found it had a lot of similarities with post apocalyptic. There's been a disaster, society's kind of fallen apart, and eventually had to stop playing in it because I just really felt like there's, they really this bad guys really got this world on lockdown, mm-hmm. uh, and it sort of became implausible to to run the game in the world. Uh, but it did inform a lot of my you know how I run post apocalyptic apocalyptic games after that which was like there's got to be some element of things could get better like society goes on life goes on kind of thing so i did want to take a I mean, we've talked a lot and, and a lot of what we've talked about has mostly been from the dm perspective of how to run a post-apocalyptic game um i we are running up to about an hour here but i did want to take the time to talk about or talk to our players a little bit too is there something that players can do or should do to to make running or playing in a post apocalyptic post apocalyptic game fun? I think buying into it really, Lito. A lot of D anD D, um, a lot of conversations about uh, of deal, you know, dealing with players. A lot of times is like people don't like to have their stuff stolen. They don't like to lose things that they fought hard for. But that is so much of what post-apocalypse is. So having them buy into that, like, okay, you know, you're going to lose some stuff sometimes, you know, that's just part of the part of the game. And so um, I think making sure that they're on the same same level there would help. Yeah, that's I think that's really key. You know, you know, if they're used to a more, um, I guess, like standard 5e game where you're not your stuff's not going to get taken from you. The, 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 there's a spell that'll probably fix most long term consequences that you don't want. Like, I think telling them it's like this is something different it's something that is a bit more challenging and like there's a lot of like you know a lot of reward out of overcoming that challenge and then sitting down and and really talking with them like all right what is it that we can do to make this more engaging for you are there parts that we can uh, kind of change uh that was more from the dm side but from a player side just like try something different be willing to engage with a new mode of play and accept that like the familiar outcomes and situations are going to be changed in this and that experiencing that even if just once to try it is is worthwhile and i guess it kind of th- this kind of goes back to dm advice but it's a dm advice in dealing in in helping create that buy-in i think is that i think it's a good idea if this is not the genre of play that your group has used before um to maybe set up like, hey, we're going to try this thing. Let me describe it to you so we're all on the same page. I need you to be on board to try this, but we're going to do it for like four sessions or six sessions or whatever, right? Get a real good taste for it. If we like it, we'll keep going with the campaign. If we don't like it, you know, let me know as we get close to the end and I'll make sure we sort of hit a, a satisfying conclusion and, and stop because it's entirely – reasonable for players to to buy in but to ask them to buy in long term for something that they're just not into and and that's that's okay i think it's entirely possible for this uh gritty sort of survival uh is the main goal sort of or one of the main goals sort of game uh that is the post-apocalypse um that is a style of play that they may not be on board for and and that's that's okay right uh so Mm. 
So I think setting things up so that you, you give it a real shot, you see how it goes, but you keep the lines of communication open about when we need to start wrapping it up because it's just not, okay, I've got it. It was fun. Can we stop doing it now, please? You know, I could definitely see that <laughs> happening. And probably yeah. be very upfront if there's anything that you would be incredibly uncomfortable with happening because there are a lot of, in a lot of these uh, reference settings and stuff for post-apocalyptic, there can be stuff that it's like goes beyond just being uncomfortable in the, in the game. Yeah. Be very clear about your lines and veils. Yeah. I mean, a lot of what post-apocalypse is, is the breakdown of society. So what happens when society breaks down, people become, you know, the, the general idea is that people become more debased and do what they, what they feel like they have to do, which is often hurting other people in, in numerous ways. So yes, Definitely having those kind of lines and veils or talking to your players about those things, I think, is important. Ah, yeah. uh, hops. <laughs> uh, you know, and, and it occurs to me, like, I don't, I don't know that it's necessary for a post-apocalyptic genre. We keep sort of adding features uh, and elements to the, what, how we define post-apocalyptic. But, but, but slavery is definitely one of those things that might be problematic for some people that is – in some post-apocalyptic settings, um, that a word I'm never going to say correctly the first time, uh, <laughs> apparently. Um, in some of those settings, like slavery is integral to you know to what the what kind of story you're telling and what's going on. Yeah, that's one of the things that you know is brought up a lot. Um, in f discussions of fifth edition and dark sun, um, a lot of the people are saying, you know, like, uh, you know, wizards of the coast will never do dark sun cause it's got too many hard topics. And I, I don't think that's true. Um, I, I'm, I mean, not only wizards of the coast, but TSR before them literally in their documents that said about how to write dark sun slavery was always to be viewed as evil. Slavers were never to be, uh, viewed in a good light. So, you know, I don't see any reason to have it differently now. There's also, though, in a lot of the reference, like other movies and stuff, also like the role of women and, and other things that uh, get very difficult because there's often a because of like we, some people we keep bringing up like might makes right uh, type of thing, which often in our society leads to certain people think will go a certain way, which isn't necessarily what would happen if our society happened to break down. Cause we have lots of other uh, cultures where that didn't happen. Certainly. Yeah. And, and one of the things that can sort of make that so that it doesn't necessarily happen that way is a lot of times in post-apocalypse stuff, you'll have like emergent powers, right? Like you'll get, you know, psionics comes out of, out of nowhere, you know, like in dark sun, they got rid of, of, of kind of, at least not necessarily got rid of, but diminished arcane magic. And so they wanted to replace it with something. And so they replaced it with psionics, which is also a very kind of modern thing that happens in a lot of modern sci-fi is like, you know, you get uh, um, psionics. And so that would sort of mitigate some of those things where like, if anybody can have psionics, then all of a sudden, you know, anybody can be powerful. Yeah. Witchcraft and herbalists uh, for helping with healing and, and things like that. If you don't have magic medicine anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, really, uh, I think a lot of the joy of post-apoc is, and, and getting back to the, the post-apoc, Tracy, you, you said you enjoy, it, it can be about subverting like standard narratives of post-apoc, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, even having Furiosa be as 
central and badass as she is, is a, a very, very deliberate subversion of uh, standard post-apoc narratives. Yeah. Uh, but also, like, the the wives have a ton of agency. Um, the Volvalini have a ton of agency. It's great. That's why it's a flawless movie, folks. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> I'm interested to know, like one of the reasons why I back Jim's Kickstarter, not only because I love WebDM and everything, but, you know, all of a sudden it was a wasteland. Yeah, that yeah. is my dark some things, but there's also psionics. I'm super interested to see uh, how uh, how their team is is uh, introducing psionics. Yeah, yeah, we we definitely wanted Psionics included in it, mostly as a nod to Dark Sun, but it, to me it also kind of fits because, like, in our sort of implied setting of, of Weird Wastelands, like, the mass catastrophe of the apocalypse sort of clears the astral plane, as it were, uh, and, and allows those that remained to tap into this new source of power, this new supernatural power of, of psionics. And it's also convenient that you don't need any spell focuses or spell books or, you know, you just sort of do your psionic power. You sort of train it up and, and can do it. So that was how we were distinguishing it sort of narratively from magic, that it's sort of this new thing that has just come about. Um, and then mechanically, we really wanted to stay as far away from it's a mirror copy of a spell system that's just like a, a carbon copy caster that, you know, we wanted something that was going to feel different in play um, as opposed to just be like a another way to get an intelligence-based uh, spellcaster. So we're, we're hoping we can hit that sweet spot of like not too complicated, but offering something uh, different from a base class. Um, yeah. So I wanted to uh, – we're, we're at the past an hour mark, um, but I wanted to give everybody sort of a chance to, to share their last thoughts, to, to bring up any topics that, that occurred to them that they haven't talked about yet, to ask any questions they have. I know uh, uh, Dar Jr. In the, um, in the chat had a question about UVG in fifth and, and the combination of UVG and fifth edition rules. Um, I don't know UVG and honestly don't remember what it stands for. Somebody mentioned it. <laughs> so somebody else will have to speak to that. <laughs> uh, uh, so UVG ultraviolet grasslands, uh, which is a, has its own system. Like if you actually have the book, it's got its own like micro light sort of D 20 esque system. But yeah, I, I think fifth edition could run it, uh, uh, just fine. Like I don't have a conversion guide <laughs> uh, or anything, but I'm, I'm sure just given the robustness of five, you could probably eyeball most of it. Um, it, I mean, it's meant to be played in a D and D like fashion. You travel across these giant sort of science fantasy grasslands, investigating ancient, you know, ruined sites and things like that. If you took fifth edition D and D and added on your book, would it cover it pretty well? Oh yeah, absolutely. Our book is sort of designed to be played like with UVG, Dark Sun, like, you know, we, it's got its own implied setting, which is drawn from some of our actual plays for fans of WebDM, but we wanted it to be a toolkit in the vein of like Sandstorm from uh, third edition, where it's like, it's just the tools you need to have this kind of adventure. Any other sort of last thoughts or, or final questions that people wanted to ask? I was just thinking, I think it was Brandis that said it earlier, the, the importance of story uh, in a lot of um, stories that are post-apocalyptic. Uh, yeah. And then also the combination with uh, talking about not needing spell focuses, but also spell books. And the, the really cool idea that could happen in terms of um, having to travel to collect oral history 
and um, both from the past and the things that people are discovering now and as to how the new world, new their new reality actually works because this isn't, it's not like, like science could change in this type of thing because it depends on what really changed in the end. Uh, and I think that could be really cool for telling stories, like for the game itself. Yeah. Um, yeah. Maybe constructive to note that uh, uh, Apocalypse is about things being revealed. And so uh, a lot of post-apocalyptic stories focus on seeking continuing revelation also of like in Mad Max in Fury Road, the question who killed the world is a, a recurring line for mm-hmm. that reason, right? Yeah. That they're they're kind of seeking that that final revelation of who's actually at fault here, which the movie pointedly refuses to answer. Yeah, I agree. I I love that aspect. That's why I really love the you know the fourth edition version of Dark Sun and and the original because that's that there were those questions. Once you yep. got to the revised edition, those were answered, and that kind of kills part of the fun for me. Um, and so I I love that aspect too of like hunting history finding out what happened and then, you know, uh, either dealing with what you have or actively making it better and changing things, you know, that element of hope that we talked about as well. It's a little bit the, uh, a miniature apocalypse, like the, the Mornland in Eberron has that same sort of like, how did that happen? What, you know, what's going on sort of question. Uh, I, I keep also going back for, for a little mini regional apocalypses. Uh, I mentioned at the beginning that, um, Robert is community manager for the company that publishes Torg Eternity. Torg Eternity has its own little post-apocalyptic setting uh, within the setting uh, called Darkhold. Um, now, there's no question about what caused it, but there's still a lot of um, there's still a lot of interesting sort of post-apocalyptic things to do in that setting, but also not get too bogged down in it because because you're gonna you're gonna jump out after at the end of this mission and go to some other uh, reality, right? So. It's a good way to sort of test test the waters, do a little bit of it, but not have to, to – if it's not your thing to do it nonstop for a long-term campaign, you can get out quick. So Exactly. All right. Any other last thoughts? Then I'm going to go ahead and call that the end of this episode. We'd like to say thank you to our sponsor, Golders Gazetteer, and also to our guests. Uh, Jim, where can folks find you? Yeah, so you guys can find me over at uh, WebDM. That's our YouTube channel uh, every Wednesday uh, where we have, uh, you know, inspirational and hopefully uh, edifying uh, D&D and tabletop role-playing videos for you guys to watch. Uh, and then uh, if you're not into video and for podcast, we are available on uh, major podcast outlet, uh, outlets, out platforms, I don't know what you call them, uh, <laughs> as WebDM Talks. Uh, and we do have that Kickstarter going, Worlds of WebDM, Weird Wasteland lands that's from uh, june 9th through july 11th and uh yeah uh juicy games do yeah they're, they're doing the fulfillment so if, if people miss the kickstarter you can still you can still look yeah yeah there'll be ways to pre-order it and get all that stuff if you missed out on the uh on the fundraiser sweet and robert where can folks find you yeah you can find me uh on twitter at radu 76 that's r-a-d-d-u 76 uh, anywhere that people are talking about Dark Sun, I'm usually there uh, in the Facebook groups, Reddit, Discord. You can go to athis.org, uh, which is the Burnt World of Athis website. Um, we just put out, uh, just today, we put out episode 
uh, episode 19 of the of Bone Stone and Obsidian, which is a Dark Sun podcast. So check those out. Brandis, where can folks find you? Uh, yeah, thank you. Um, uh, you can find me on Twitter at Brandis Stoddard. I write for Tribality.com. My personal blog is BrandisStoddard.com. And I have a Patreon that is Brandis Stoddard. And we'd also like to say thank you to, for all of you who support us by being patrons at patreon.com slash the tome show. If you want to get a hold of us, you can email the tome show at gmail.com. Uh, you can also find Tracy on Twitter. She is at Sarah Dark Magic. That's Sarah with an H. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Squatch, S Q U A C H. You can find the show. It is at the tome show. Uh, and that's most of the best ways to get a hold of us. That's episode 351, where we survive the end of the world. In this episode of... I'm also...